Welcome to Building the Future, Freedom, Prosperity, and Foreign Policy, a podcast series focused on updating the United States soft power playbook to meet the hopes and aspirations of developing countries because it's in America's interest to do so. I'm Dan Rundy, Senior Vice President at CSIS. There are a lot of global challenges out there, so let's get started. Hello and welcome back to another episode of Building the Future with Dan Rundy. Today I'm joined by former Congressman Peter Roskam. Congressman Roskam is a former six-term U.S. Congressman from Illinois. He is currently a partner at Sidley in Austin. Former Congressman Roskam has held some important positions in Congress during his tenure from 07 to 2019. In addition to serving in the House leadership as the Chief Deputy Whip, he chaired three major subcommittees on the House Ways and Means Committee. Before his work on Capitol Hill in Washington, Congressman Roskam represented Chicago's Western suburbs for 13 years in the Illinois House of Representatives and in the Illinois State Senate, where he developed a close working relationship with the then State Senator Barack Obama. Congressman Roskam also currently serves as a member of CSIS's Ukraine Economic Reconstruction Commission. This commission aims to produce a policy framework uh, looking at private sector investment uh, and in the context of Ukraine's future reconstruction. Congressman Roskam, thanks for being on Building the Future with Dan Rundy. Dan Rundy in person. It's great to be with you. Thank you. Delighted to be here. You kidding me? Congressman, tell us about your career. How did you become a member of Congress? And what were some of the things you worked on while you were in Congress? I was one of those kids in grade school that couldn't get enough of the state of Illinois section when we did it, you know, learned the learned the state bird and the state song and all of that stuff. And I didn't grow up in a political family, Dan, but just continued to feel myself drawn to public life. And that manifests itself in different ways. And then in the early 80s, I had a friend, family friend who was in Reagan's White House and his legislative affairs shop. He gave me some advice and said, if you want to get involved, you're not a big Republican family, so you're not likely to get a job in in the Reagan administration. You don't have enough time to get a job in the civil service. He said, go to Capitol Hill and start knocking on doors and hustle around. And I ended up knocking on Tom DeLay's door when he was a freshman member of Congress. He went on later to become majority leader and worked for DeLay and then worked for my predecessor, Henry Hyde, then ultimately made a decision to move back to Chicagoland, finish law school, and then ran for office and 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 got active. But it's been it's been a great joy. I, I I completely was energized by my time in public life, both in the Illinois legislature and in the U.S. Congress. Okay, and so tell us about what was it like being a, a member of Congress. What was what was the most interesting part of it? I think the most interesting part is the range of activities that you're dealing with. Like literally, you can be dealing with talking to Boy Scouts and Girl Scouts from Lombard, Illinois, one day to sitting down with Petro Poroshenko, the president of Ukraine, all within the same, you know, within the same scope of things. So it's this incredibly wide range. I remember going door to door in my campaign in 2006 I'm in a kind of a tougher area and I'm knocking on the door and it's a glass door that's kind of all funky from some dog that's been slobbering all over it. And it's 
chain link fence and a little tough and a, and a frazzled mom comes to the door and, and I end up talking to her. I kind of give her my pitch. A couple of weeks later, I win the election and I find myself a couple of days after that invited to the White House to sit down with a small group with George W. Bush, who was president at the time. And in a small circle, he's kind of taken people's soundings of whether he should go in about the surge or not in Iraq. And he pointed at me at one point and said, what do you think? And Dan, it was interesting. My mind sort of flashed to that lady that I was talking to on the funky door that I just described a couple of minutes ago. And it was this recognition of what an incredibly flat system. Like I'm talking to her and I'm talking to the president of the United States and I'm her connection to the Oval Office. It's just this breathtaking responsibility, really, a, a stewardship in a way that I found really, and I continue to find it invigorating and really encouraging. Well, that's that's amazing. I'm really happy you agreed to be on the CSIS, Ukraine Reconstruction Commission. What's your tie to Ukraine? So it's kind of by osmosis. I married the daughter of Ukrainian immigrants. So my wife's mother came over in the 1930s. And my wife's grandparents fled, you know, fled Stalin, fled the Holomodor, fled the whole thing and created a home and a business in Detroit. So I grew up with, you know, kind of an interest introduced by that family connection. There is a Ukrainian diaspora of some significance in the Chicago area. You know, I've I've developed that connection. I also, uh, when I was in Congress, chaired an entity called the House Democracy Partnership. It's a bipartisan commission, 20 members, that is designed to interact with the parliaments of emerging democracies. And it's an exchange. And so one of those countries that we've interacted with quite a bit was Ukraine. So interacting with members of the RADA was significant. And I was invited twice to be an election observer with the International Republican Institute. So I was over in Chernigov and I was in Odessa and all of those things, you know, the cumulative nature of those impacts and relationships told me every time I came back and I did did press on these, I would always say, you know, don't bet against the Ukrainians. This is a tenacious people and they've Historic history has dealt them a really tough deck of cards over the past several decades. And notwithstanding what they've been dealt with, when you really distill it down, this is a people that is resolute on their desire to have a relationship with the West, to have these norms that you and I have grown up with to consider, you know, we, we consider historically normal. And yet the Ukrainians are fighting for these things and they're putting it all on the line. So I came came away from that with just a great deal of admiration and and recognition of how incredibly significant this is. And the current conflict will play, I think, a much more significant role in the disposition of other potential hotspots around the world. So it's really important that the West, led by the United States, in my view, gets this right. So why does Ukraine matter, Congressman? Ukraine matters because everybody's watching. Everybody's watching. They're watching the the resolve of a group of people that have that have said we're not going to be subject to to bullying and manipulation and notwithstanding the type of really just outrageously provocative thing that that Putin has rained down on them. 
that they're they're willing to stand and to be and to uh, push against that. I think strong men all over the world are evaluating this. I think the Chinese are are taking notes and and observing very very carefully and measuring their steps vis-a-vis Taiwan. And I'll put it another way: if if we walk away from Ukraine, if let's assume for the sake of argument that Ukraine just completely collapses and and the the West walks away, Ukraine is completely absorbed, and then I think. That's license for uh, Xi Jinping to be incredibly aggressive vis-a-vis Taiwan, and he will have rightly sized up the West's resolve and say, we can do this. We can we can take this. And then at that point, you see a massive geopolitical shift, a massive shift in terms of the, the flow of goods and a whole host of other things. So Ukraine matters on its own, but the shadow that Ukraine casts I think is even more significant. If you were back home at a town hall meeting and still a member of Congress, what arguments would be you making to your constituents about why economic assistance to Ukraine matters? First of all, I would call upon the heritage of, of the United States. You know, we're the good guys and we're a white hat country. And even when we make mistakes, by and large, they're not mistakes of malevolence. Are we I tell my kids, no. Congressman, boys, we're the good guys. We're the yeah. good. We're a good guy country. I hundred percent agree with that. We're a good guy country, and so we're there. And and our intention is to seek stability and opportunity, and and so forth. And the proof of that is our whole conduct. Um, you know, post World War II, and even if you look at Korea and and Vietnam, yeah, there's a lot of adventures there. But on balance, look, we're helping Ukraine. Because Ukraine wants to help itself. That's that's the first thing. Second thing is everybody loves a winner. And Ukraine, uh, Ukraine is like the Rocky Balboa of Europe. You know what I mean? They can take a punch and keep coming back and keep coming back. There's a brightness to that and something that just needs to be admired. And if you distill it down, you know what, what the thing is that we should do. And then I would also make the point that if we don't do this, does this become more stable or less stable? And I would argue that if we step away, it becomes less stable. And that's that's not what we need. And then the final point is the Ukrainians are taking the, the lion's share of this violence and this oppression. They're stepping into it. So this is not a situation where young Americans are being asked to sacrifice their lives. The Ukrainians are stepping up and are doing this. And we've got the wherewithal, we've got the resources, and we've got the, the capacity to do it, and we need to do it. I, I would be very emphatic about, about making this point, that it is a bucket of crazy to walk away from this. Complete foolishness, it's reckless, and we ought not trifle in this. And this yeah. weird vibe that's going on in both political parties that we need to really be mindful of, and that is this isolationism that we see on the right, this isolationism that we see on the left. And look, there's echoes of this throughout history, and it just doesn't end well. You know what I mean? When when we step back, who emerges? Tyrants emerge. Bad guys <laughs> fill voids, Congressman. We ought to talk once a week. I just that feels so much better talking to you because I 100% agree with you. Everything you're saying, we're a good guy country. Bad guys fill vacuums. The, the Ukrainians are stepping up. 
And if we withdraw, it's a signal to our adversaries in other parts of the world, read China and Taiwan, that they got a license to do something bad in Taiwan. There's an interesting book that I read not long ago, um, and you may have read it by Lynn Olson called Those Angry Days. And it's a it's it's a book that talks about the isolationism that predated our entrance into World War Two. And she does a very good job of breaking this down into the personalities of FDR and Charles Lindbergh. And it was like game on between these guys. You read this book and it's like Lindbergh. I mean, there's just so much to criticize. He was such an apologist for the fascists. It was terrible. And he was an American hero and he just sullied this reputation. Terrible, terrible, terrible. He slunk off after the war kind of into obscurity, right? Right. He said, oh, these Germans are so powerful, et cetera, et cetera. So anyways, I commend it to you. And it's it's a story that's worth repeating. Okay, I'm going to read it. I'm going to get it and read it. I'm home alone this weekend. I'm bacheloring it. So I know what I'm going to be doing this weekend is reading those angry days. By the time this podcast comes out, we're going to know what's going to happen in the midterm elections. I'm guessing that there's going to be a Republican majority in the House and probably a Republican majority in the Senate. We're doing this in late October. You know, the polls go up, the polls go down, but the trend seems to go in that direction. So I think there are thoughtful voices in the Republican Party, including yourself. I include myself in that category who are in favor of continuing support for Ukraine. Can you talk about where the Republican Party is on support for Ukraine as we are right now in late October 2022? And there are some there's some worries and kind of undercurrent of worry that somehow we're going to go we're going to go wobbly on support for Ukraine. Is the Republican Party going to go wobbly on support for Ukraine if we get the majorities in the House and the Senate? I don't think so. Here's a couple of ways to approach this. And I think some of the, the wobbly stories are based on a, a quote that Kevin McCarthy gave to Jake Sherman in a story in Punchbowl a couple of weeks ago that said, you know, a, some level of criticism about the, the plans and so forth. So I don't think it was a great thing for McCarthy to say. That's my opinion. But let's let's set that aside. But I think that's kind of feeding feeding some of this. The first thing is don't panic. I think a majority, if you look at the polling, a majority of Republicans think that supporting Ukraine is the right thing to do. Now, does that mean supporting Ukraine into perpetuity? Probably not. Does that mean writing Ukraine a blank check? Probably not. You know, so there's there's common sense limitations, but I think a majority of Republicans think that our support for Ukraine is merited and smart and importantly in, in our interest. The second thing is, in addition to not panicking, is realize just human nature, Dan, everybody loves a winner. This is human nature. And we we want to be affiliated with winners. It is cooked deep inside us. And let's face it, the Ukrainians are winners. I mean, these people have overperformed basically the whole world and to kind of dismiss them and that they're just going to get completely rolled. And Zelensky's leadership. His line was, I don't need a ride. Give me guns. It's out of a movie. It's out of a movie. Right. And so there's there's so much to admire there. And we love winners. And so Ukraine is winning. And so to continue to build on that, I think, is significant. And then the other thing is it's related to don't panic. And it is just... To continue to to tell this story 
and to make this case and don't be defensive about it. I, I think that that's that's the important thing. So Republicans need to be saying, look, we do all kinds of things in terms of trying to create the most stable world we can. We're not here pumping sunshine, saying that we can control all these things. But my goodness, when this sort of malevolence, you know, the mask is off with Vladimir Putin. There's no pretense. And thankfully, nobody, I'll put it this way, very few voices now are are actually trying to make Putin's case. They may be apologists, but they're not really trying to make the moral case their, their case at best is, well, he is he will be inevitably successful. And I reject that. And I think the, the Ukrainians themselves have rejected that. And so I, I think that there's opportunities, but the, the Ukrainians ought not to be living in too much of an expectation. You know what I mean? They, they, they've got to keep selling and keep encouraging and, and keep reporting back. They ought not be defensive when people come in and say, well, let's have this level of accountability or that level of accountability, they should just say, hey, man, listen, we'll, we'll we'll account all day long and bring in whoever you want. We're spending the money. We'll spend it on good things. That's right. Congressman, this has been great. I really appreciate it. Thanks for being on the commission. I'm really grateful you said yes. And thanks for being on this podcast today. I'm, I think it's uh, timely and I really appreciate it. Thanks for the time. Great to be with you. If you enjoyed this podcast, check out our larger suite of CSIS podcasts from Into Africa, The Asia Chessboard, China Power, AIDS 2020, The Trade Guys, Smart Women, Smart Power, and more. You can listen to them all on major streaming platforms like iTunes and Spotify. Visit csis.org podcasts to see our full catalog 